We are in part 10 of our series going through the Revelation. Today we'll be uh, addressing Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna. And just to remind you before I read, you know, these, uh, these uh, four verses, that the theme is, that we see in the Revelation is the victory, over, uh, the victory of Christ over all evil, over all oppression. And so as we look at these uh, seven letters to seven churches, which really... Uh, amounts to part two of the outline of Revelation. Part one of the outline is chapter one. Part two of the outline is chapters two and three. And then really four through 18 is uh, part three. What we're going to see here is that Jesus is exhorting churches to remain churches. That ultimately, even as we sung in the song, that the, the, the church is being built And the righteousness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But what's important is that churches remain churches. And we're going to see that theme throughout these seven letters to these seven churches because they're being tempted to move in a wayward direction. And we're going to see uh, something quite unique this morning as we look at uh, Smyrna. There's something about Smyrna that is unlike the other seven churches or the other six churches. So Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11 here now. The word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that even as we sang, that you would sanctify our hearts and our minds. Help us to be transformed by the renewing thereof. And we do pray that in all of this, that your name would be lifted up and your glory would prevail. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful promise you've given to us that you will overcome sin and death and goodness and your light will reign upon the earth all the way into glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wasn't raised, as many of you know, in the church. And I actually have a pretty clear recollection of my assessment of Christians back in the 60s and 70s. To me, they seemed a bit antiseptic. And to use a term that we used to use back in the 60s, square. And the ones, you know, who refused to participate in our shenanigans, at least I viewed them as a bit holier than thou. Little self-righteous. Well, in contemplating coming to faith, because I remember wrestling through this as a teenager, one of my early concerns, and I, think, I don't want to call it a fear because that seems like too strong of a, a word, was that I might not be considered cool or hip. I'm like, 
this community just doesn't seem all that hip to me. And now I'm going to be part of this uncool culture. And, and the prospect of being accused of being self-righteous or judgmental, like entering a group of people who are routinely accused of being judgmental and self-righteous, was very off-putting to me. Uh, these are the things I wrestled with before I came to faith. That and whether or not God would send me to a foreign country. I, you know me, I don't want to go east of PCH. And I'm thinking, where is he going to send me if I go down this road? Nonetheless, the Holy Spirit had his way with me, and the, the effective call of God changed my heart, and God brought me near uh, by his grace. But as I, as I now peruse the, the current cultural environment, I get the vivid impression that being accused of being antiseptic or square or uncool or self-righteous or judgmental, although they're still on the list, and I think they will always be on the list of people, people's misgivings, I don't think those things are any longer on the top of the list in terms of what young people especially have to grapple with in terms of the, what's, being hap- what's happening to dissuade them from coming to faith. I think there are new adjectives that are riding shotgun on the stagecoach of the enemy's efforts to keep people away from the Christian faith. Last week, we talked a little bit about the accusation of being hateful and bigoted. It's kind of a routine in terms of uh, the accusations against Christians. But I think we can add to that. I think we are now in a place where if you present a Christian life and worldview, if you begin to present Christian ethics, you will be accused of being outright evil. The ethics now are evil. That which Christians think is right has now become, in this world, a dark enterprise. Let me give you an example. In a mere half generation, we have evolved from what actually constitutes legitimate amorous or um, sexual desire. Just a half a generation ago, the argument was, why do you care about what I do in the confines of my own bedroom? That was the argument. Why do you care about that? But that is no longer the argument. The, the new argument is, if you don't publicly endorse and sanction my passionate proclivities and allow your children to be catechized thusly, you are an evil person and you should be ostracized from public discourse. We, it's not just now what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom. We want a parade and we want to require that it be in the curriculum of your five-year-olds. That's where we've gone in a half a generation. It may very well in this generation coming up, become illegal, even in the pulpit, to teach that intimacy 
should be confined to marriage, and that marriage should be between a biological male and a biological female. I never thought that that would be such a cutting-edge thing to say. I never thought I may get in trouble for saying that. But that's, that is what our young people are contending with. That's the world that we've left them in terms of the kind of way we've approached the kingdom of God in this generation. Now, I, I open with this for a couple of reasons. Because here's kind of what, the way I operate, you know, when I study a passage. And I look at that passage, and I feel like, all right, I think I have a grasp of it. And then I ask myself, what jumps out at me in terms of what this passage is teaching in relationship to the world that we're now living in? So I, I mentioned this the, for a couple of reasons. One is, I want us, especially those of us who are a little bit older, to be sensitive to the challenges facing our young people. It, it, they're in a different world than we are in. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, it's facing us as well, but they are bombarded with this thinking. Now, you've already heard in this church a couple of times references to predestination and election and what, whatever term you like to, to use it, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace. And you may think, well, if you believe in election and predestination, why are you so concerned about, you know, the, the cultural environment and the sins by which we're surrounded. You, should, you might think, you know what, cultural pressures simply don't matter. But a Jesus wouldn't agree. Jesus seemed to indicate, as a matter of fact, a lot of scripture indicates that, that riches, for example, are highly dissuasive in terms of bringing somebody to faith. That, that an undue love affair with the world, whether you love the world or the world loves you, these are things that kind of enter our psyche that the enemy uses to keep us from embracing the Christian faith. So, so even though we most assuredly recognize that apart from grace, it is impossible to use the words of Jesus to come to faith. It's impossible in the nature of man. There are things in this world, the world, the flesh, the devil, that make war with the kingdom of God. Well, we have to recognize that this general love of the world can be a formidable and dissuasive enemy when it comes to walking by faith. We can't put our heads in the sand. We need to recognize the world in which we live and how it is affecting not only the way we think, but affecting those who are potential converts. And you might say, well, I'm glad I'm not rich, but let me just tell you this. You know, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God, by, by historic standards and by cultural standards, everybody probably listening to my voice would be in the category of rich. That, that, that is just where we are, unless this gets broadcast, you know, in, in India or into China. Everybody who's listening to this, you're in the, you are in the wealthy category. Most of us live, put it this way, in a world that's quite nice to us. The other reason I bring this up to begin with is the do not fear category um, in this passage. Now, the do not fear that Jesus brings up is likely referring to martyrdom. Do not fear what's about to happen to you. But let me just tell you this, that if you're not willing If you're not willing to be faithful to a lesser threat, don't don't think or fantasize that you're going to be willing 
to be faithful to a greater threat. Don't go, you know, I, I'm going to give in to these little things that are tempting me, but if the big thing comes, I'm going to stand my ground. That is not the way it works. There's a biblical principle that teaches us that if we're not faithful in the small, we won't be faithful in the big. So we need to recognize that even though I don't have the message to you right now that you're about to be thrown into prison, I don't have the message to you right now that you may be put to death, and I'm not going to say be faithful unto death when the death comes, because you're probably all, like me, going to die of having too fatty of a diet or something like that. You're not going to... Nonetheless, we need to recognize that we are called to faithfulness. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's, he's, he is calling these people to be faithful. Now, what we're going to see in this letter to Smyrna is an example. And it is the one example, the only example of these seven churches of a faithful church. Yeah, there's, there's a pattern in these seven letters where, you know, you see the title of Christ and you see him saying, I know something about you. And then there's usually some critique of something they're doing wrong. That's not happening with Smyrna. Everything in Smyrna is positive. Smyrna is a faithful church. Yet, know this, that does not exempt them from the difficulties that lie ahead. They are a faithful church, but they're about to enter into difficult times. Now, let's talk a little bit about Smyrna itself. Smyrna is about somewhere between 35 to 50 miles north of Ephesus. Remember, last, year, last week we started with Ephesus. We're, we're, the, these letters, these seven letters, seven churches, are on a Roman postal route. So it starts with Ephesus, and then it starts kind of doing like a horseshoe. So we're, now we're going north. And Smyrna was known as a very beautiful city. It was actually called the lovely crown, the ornament of Asia. So we're talking about a place that if you, you might go there on vacation because it's so nice. Actually, it was very rich. They had a lot of trade that took place there. But interestingly enough, in 580 BC, before Christ, that city was leveled to the ground. It was leveled to nothing and then rebuilt in 290 B.C. So we've got a, a couple of hundred years here. And it was one of the first and only actual planned cities. It, they, didn't, they kind of said, okay, what are we going to do here? If you've ever been to a planned city, you, know, you can see that things are pretty well organized. And they were actually known for having streets of gold. Now, I tried to do a little research and go, well, was it real gold, or was it gold-plated, or was it painted gold? I don't have an answer to that question. But that's kind of the city. It was like this beautiful city with streets of gold. But in 195 B.C., now this is before the Roman Empire. This is still during the time when the Greeks more or less ruled the world. They erected there a temple to the goddess of Rome. They actually had to win that honor. That was something, you know, it was like winning the, you know, a place to have the Olympics, right? You had to compete for it and get the honor of erecting a temple to the goddess of Rome. And I mention that because Smyrna was a hub of emperor worship. And I think it's important for us to recognize this. Um, the, the, the Caesars 
required that the citizens acknowledge their deity, that they, were, they weren't just leaders, they weren't just civil magistrates, they had a level of godhood that the citizens needed to acknowledge. They actually built a temple to Tiberius, who was the Caesar in Rome from 14 to 37 AD. So they're going, we're going to, we, we're going to, we, we are on board to worship Caesar. They also had athletic games there. Smyrna was also famous for a colony of Jews who, very similar to the Pharisees, were very hostile to Christians. That's probably the reference here to the synagogue of Satan. We'll get to that in a second. They say they are Jews, but they're not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. All of these things we find in the city of Smyrna. That's the kind of city that we see Jesus riding to. Now, one other thing that we know from history about Smyrna, Polycarp. You don't see him in the Bible. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John, one of the uh, last living students of the Apostle John, who wrote the Revelation. And Polycarp was the bishop at Smyrna. So he was the Christian there. He was the religious head of Smyrna. Now, in 155, Polycarp was 86 years old, and he was arrested for his faith. Now, the proconsul, the Roman authorities, they threatened him. You know, they had to find him, then they threatened him. We're going to tear you apart with wild beasts unless you deny Christ and just pinch a little incense to Caesar. Matter of fact, if you get into the whole story, and we don't have time to get to the whole story here, it was almost as if, you know, the authority figures, they kind of liked him. He, he was a well-liked person. And they're like going, look it, all you have to do is a little incense. Pinch a little incense and just say, Caesar is Lord. You know, we're common, we commonly say, Jesus is Lord. I don't think we recognize that the phrase, Jesus is Lord, was a response to Caesar is Lord. So you got to make a decision. Yeah, who's your king? King, we have no king but Caesar, we read in the Gospels. Or is Christ your Lord? That is what Polycarp is being hit with. And they're basically saying, if you don't do this, we're going to throw you in there and wild animals are going to eat you. We have actually the words, because this was very public of Polycarp. This was his response. Four score and six years... So he's 86 years old. Four score and six years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? This is a brother in Christ, and I think it's worth recognizing. So apparently the wild beast threat wasn't working, so now they threaten to burn him. Matter of fact, the, it's very likely that the, those who are part of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews, but are not, were the ones kind of behind this. And historically, we are taught that they actually, on the Sabbath, gathered wood, which they weren't supposed to do, just to burn Polycarp. That's how into it they were. Well, they're about to burn him. And then we have another speech recorded. Polycarp makes this statement when, they, when they're like, okay, we're, you're going to get burned. And he said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. 
but are ignorant of the coming fire that is reserved for the ungodly. So why do you delay? Do whatever you will. And he was burned. And he was refused an honorable burial in hopes of sending a message to the church. But it did not actually accomplish its desired effect. We're still talking about Polycarp. Right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay, moving on. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, just to review, the word angel here is probably referring to the pastor of the congregation who is giving the message to the congregation. And then we have the title, first and last, dead and came to life. I don't want to put too much into that. We're not told exactly why a specific title is given to a specific church in terms of the address of Jesus. Some people have speculated that it had to do with what was happening in Smyrna itself. Smyrna, in a sense, as a city, died and came back to life. Like I said earlier, the whole city was waylaid in 590, 580, and then it was built up and it became a beautiful hub. So maybe some people speculate that it's kind of like it was dead and now it's alive. There was also a fable that was popular at the time and. You may have heard this. You hear this kind of sometimes when people say, well, you know, the story of Jesus dying and coming back to life. There were people before him who did that or they said about that. And, um, you know, not to get into the details there, but, you know, the message of the gospel goes all the way back to the beginning of time. So, of course, there are going to be counterfeits. You're going to hear, well, other religions believed in a flood. Well, of course, other religions believed in the flood. You know why? Because there was a flood. I mean, these types of arguments, they seem like they get gravel, but they really don't. But there was this uh, fable that Dionysus was dead and came back to life. And so some people speculated that's like, no, this is the real first and last who was dead and came back to life. Well, I, I don't know for sure, but it seems most reasonable to me as I read this to conclude that since the church was about to undergo such a fiery trial, which may have included the death of many of these people, they are reminded who's in control of human history. First and last, beginning and end. This is a, these are designations that belong to God and to God alone, who is in control of history. And the fact that they were going to be presented with the possibility of dying, they needed to know that they served a Savior who was dead and came back to life and gives the victory of that life to all who call upon his name. And we need to ever approach the revelation, really any book in the Bible, with a recognition of the resurrection. Our minds can't drift as we study the Bible away from the fact that the power of the victory that we're going to see in this entire book is assigned to the resurrection. And that goes to you individually over the sin and death that inevitably waits you or the culture in terms of its effect. It is the power of the resurrection that accomplishes these things. Moving on, verse 9. This is, again, Jesus speaking. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the city, as I said, was rich, but the members of this church were not. That's a conclusion we have to kind of draw here. It was not an easy place to be a Christian. 
we're going to see later in Revelation that trade unions actually required an allegiance to, to Caesar. You know, I talked about Polycarp. You, had, you pinch a little incense. If you don't do that, if you didn't do that, you could not engage in the trade. Later, we're going to see this more or less in a reference to the mark of the beast. If you don't take the mark, you can't engage in this society in any kind of prosperous way. Their tribulation. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Well, what does that mean, their tribulation? That they, that they were oppressed, that they were afflicted, that things were hard for them. And their poverty, poverty was just that, literal poverty. They, they just couldn't make ends meet. They didn't have two nickels to rub together. And all of this is very likely due to their faithfulness. The, you know, they, if they wanted to remain faithful, they were not going to ascend to the higher ladder of the society. Apparently, the prosperity gospel had not reached Smyrna. So let me ask you, and I ask myself, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to maintain our faithfulness? Because I'm going to tell you, we've lived in a culture where it's... Um, kind of politically expeditious and beneficial to be a Christian. That's kind of the way it's been in America for a while. You, you want to, like I've said before, you want to run for president, you still got to kind of be a Christian. We've not had a president who has not in some level said, I'm a Christian. But what, when we get to the place where that is no longer required, where it's no longer profitable or beneficial, either financially or socially, are you still willing to be faithful? Are you willing to count the cost? You know, I was talking about, you know, things that were a deterrent to me in coming to faith. You know, the, the Christian faith was presented to me, you know, as an abundant life, you know, from John 10, 10. And I get that because I'm going, okay, my life was pretty good. You're saying it could be better. I don't see Jesus presenting the gospel that way. I see him saying things like, I don't have a, a, a rock to lay my head on. You need to die. You need to hate your own life. I mean, he's saying these things where you're kind of going, wow, how do you get any followers at all with that kind of presentation? And yet we need to ever, especially as we mature, kind of go, look, at. I understand more and more what it costs, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ, whether it has to do with income, the convenience of public education, social advancement, creature comforts, and life itself. Are you kind of going, look, and I'm trying to prepare my heart and my mind to be willing to give it all up? Are we willing to remain or even descend to the lower ladder of our culture for our faith? Are we willing, are you willing to be poor in the world's eyes that you might be rich toward God. Now, you know, I mean, you, you, you maybe right now in the back of your mind, you're going, yeah, yeah, I can. All right, well, good, good for you. Well, let's just see what happens, right? As life really kind of begins to give you the blows. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10.34, For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. 
You know, you can barely read a few chapters in your Bible without coming across some lesson on the deceptiveness of riches. To what extent do we believe and embrace the estimation of Christ as we read in this passage of what actually constitutes riches? Do you have it squarely in your mind what riches actually are? Because Jesus says, I know your poverty, I know your tribulation, but you are rich. What's he saying there? That's not, he's not being contradictory. You're poor in one way, but you're rich in another way. And the way you're rich, we have to read that, is far superior to the way that you're poor. Well, we read in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. No, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were a lot, you're going to read a lot of people in the Bible, you know, who have money and are godly people. It's not as if being rich is inherently evil. It is a great temptation. And if you start putting faith in riches, you're putting your faith in that which is uncertain. The uncertainty of riches. Because, you know, let me tell you, however rich you are right now, you might be poor tomorrow. It's just the way it works. All you have to do is go back, you know, less than a century Everybody who was rich in 1928 was not rich in 1929. So we forget it was, you know, the beginning of the Depression, for those of you who are not old enough to remember. (laughs) Going on with the passage, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's not a call... Uh, to be ascetic or monastic. You, God has given us things to enjoy, right? I mean, it's not, you're, you, you, you don't want to become kind of like the Desert Fathers who go, well, I've got to whip myself in order to be sanctified. You just need to be faithful. And if the whipping comes, so be it. But you don't whip yourself. God has given us things to enjoy, and when he gives us something to enjoy, we should enjoy it. They are to do good. And if you want to be rich, we have the definition here. Be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's true life. He's kind of giving us a definition. When Jesus says, I know your poverty, I know your tribulation, but you're rich, he's saying in terms of what really constitutes true life, you have it. Then he talks about this blasphemy, and for those of you who don't know what blasphemy means, it's a reviling accusation. That's what blasphemy means. Oftentimes in the Bible, it's kind of aimed toward God. Here, it's probably aimed toward that church. Jesus is saying, I know that they are blaspheming you. They're reviling you. They're falsely accusing you. I mean, going back to Polycarp, he was falsely accused. They brought, same as with Jesus, they brought in false witnesses to testify against him. This is why I brought this up in our introduction, because we live in a culture where young people are going to be accused. They're going to be reviled. They're going to be blasphemed because they think in terms of biblical ethics. Don't expect accolades from the world when they discover you're a follower of Christ. If they come, great, but don't expect them. Jesus made that very clear. And he said, you know what, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. 
No, no servant is greater than his master. You, you need to at least have that. We, again, we're not hunting for that, but we need to be willing to endure it for Christ's sake. Jesus also knows who the antagonists are in this picture. And the antagonists are religious. Now, let me just say, anybody who's cracked a book, and I can't believe how quickly we have forgotten this, anybody who's cracked a history book knows that the 20th century is replete with the horror and tragedy of communist-slash-atheist leaders ruling in such a way as to put tens of millions of innocent people to death because they would not bow the knee to Christ. People are like, my atheist friends are like, well, as atheists, we don't, we don't believe anything, so you can't say that we have this view. I'm like, no, no, no. The problem is what you refuse to do. It's what you refuse to believe. And the fact that you refuse to bow the knee to Christ results in the fact that people like Stalin and Lenin and Mao, in this, just in one century, led a bloodbath of innocent people, even of their own citizens. So we see this historically. But I will tell you this. If you go back in history, and if you read your Bible, the most soul-damning enterprise we read of in the Scriptures comes from religious people. The greatest enemy of Jesus were priests. So we need to recognize that it is bad religion that we need to have our antennas up. The devil doesn't pose as an atheist, does he? He poses as an angel. And not just an angel, but an angel of what? Of light. He doesn't pose as a dark angel. He poses as a righteous angel. Now, this will come more to the fore as we go through the revelation. But now we have to recognize this. And we read it here in verse 9, and then it's in Revelation 3, 9. There are those who say they are Jews, but they're not. That's what Jesus says. Those who say they are Jews, but they are not. So what we're talking about here, who are we talking about here? What we're talking about are ethnic Jews. The Apostle Paul called them his countrymen according to the flesh. That, and, people, and these were people he loved, right? I mean, he was like, I, I would be accursed that my fellow countrymen according to the flesh would come to faith. I mean, he had a passion for his lost brethren according to the flesh, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. That's who we're talking about here. Now, I'm going to make a very, very long story, very, very brief here. And if you're interested, you can look at my sermons in Romans 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11 will teach that the Jews, the ethnic Jews, are not entirely removed from the equation of redemption. We have to recognize that. It's not as if those Jews who crucified Christ ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. They weren't wiped off the face of the earth. They weren't like the Amorites who just got every man, woman, child, animal. That is not what happened to the Jews. Matter of fact, what you're going to discover if you read, I think, Romans 9, 10, and 11 correctly, is that there will be a great conversion of, of Jews. That's what Paul's kind of teaching there, that it's going to be like a resurrection from the dead. People, these Jews are going to come to faith in Christ. And amen to that. Amen, amen that that'll take place. But what we should never do, and, I, and this, by the way, is the popular position today, what we should never do is teach 
that apart from Christ, any ethnic group has a favored status in the eyes of God. That is patently unbiblical. To go, your, the blood that flows through your veins, who you're related to, or your kind of ethno-political position gives you favored status in the eyes of God is a dangerous and false doctrine. But it is the predominant doctrine today. These detractors of which Jesus speaks, though they were ethnic Jews, right? They say they're Jews. According to Jesus, they're not Jews at all. They're not, he, he's going, look at it. They say they're Jews. They might have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, but they are not actually Jews. And this is something the whole New Testament teaches over and over, and yet at the same time, people are so confused. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2.29 says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. God is not a respecter of persons. God is not looking at what blood flows through your veins and goes, oh, well, we're related or something like that. It is always by promise. It is always by faith. I believe it should be the, the Christian conviction, especially, especially in the light of the fact that the Bible teaches that there will be Jews coming to faith, that we should love and evangelize Jewish people. That's, that's the way that relationship should go. We sh- we, I mean, of course, we should be that way with everybody, right? But we are to love and evangelize. People ask me that a lot because they are like what I just told you right now. Um, people who are tuning into the radio may not tune in again. People who've come to our church were like, well, I, no, I've, I've been brought up in a religious culture that teaches that what you're saying, Pastor Paul, is wrong and you, you need to repent and I'm out of here. And what am I saying? I am saying that the Jews, like anybody else, need to be loved and evangelized. Well, I taught that in a conference we had here one time. And I remember after the conference, I was back in this hallway here, and some Christian brother, pretty big, scary-looking guy, came up to me and he put his finger right in my chest and he said, you better watch yourself. Because he understood the promise in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, as referring not to the covenant people of God or the church, but to Ethnic Jews are those with some type of ethno-political relationship with Israel. And the fact that I said, no, they need to be loved and evangelized. In his mind, I was kind of off the rails. Well, I'm willing to defend that position. And I think it is, that, I think it is a position. Think about it this way. Would this man, who put his finger in my chest, have issued the same warning against Jesus, who so far from viewing this ethno-religious community as favored by God, actually refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. What are you going to say to that? They are, they, are, they are being governed by the evil one. Now, before we move on, let's keep one thing in mind in light of this passage. Because you're going to see in our confession a reference to the synagogue of Satan, and I'm going to read it in just a second. In the same way that synagogues were made up of God's covenant people and then became synagogues of Satan, churches, if they do not maintain their love and faithfulness, 
can become synagogues of Satan. That's the warning the Apostle Paul will give. He's like, don't get haughty. Don't get full of yourself. Because he'll regraft them in and he'll kick you out unless you maintain your faithfulness. We need to be aware of the fact that there's a direction churches take. And if you're going in the wrong way, that, that, that you end up in that last terminal at the synagogue of Satan. We read it in our confession. I think it said, well, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mi- mixture and error. And we all know that, right? I mean, we all recognize there's no perfect church. But some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. I mean, you talk about removing your lampstand, right? Remember we talked about that? Jesus said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And that is on the road to becoming a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, Jesus saying, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, I don't know. You might think that the first and the last, the one who is in control of human history, would simply deliver his people from peril. Right? Wouldn't that be? I've often thought, you know, of that. You're, you're looking at stories in the Bible. You know the story of the, um, the serpents that bite everybody in the Old Testament during the time of Moses. And uh, they're dying from the bite. And then God instructs Moses to build a bronze serpent. You know that story? And he's like, just look. At, by the way, it's the serpent that doctors use now, you know. And all they, what you have to do, you have to look at the, look at the bronze serpent, which is we, we learn in the Gospels is a type of Christ to be healed. Right? So there's this healing that comes. Like, I'm thinking, well, God, why don't you just get rid of the serpents? Right? He's like, I'm not getting rid of the serpents. Because I have a greater plan for you. My plan is for you to look to Christ. Because when you look to Christ, you're not just going to be healed from the serpent's bite. You're going to be healed from sin itself. You're not going to just be healed from the first death. You're going to be healed from the second death. So there's a bigger picture here. So we're looking at this kind of going, I'm reading this letter I get this letter, I'm in Smyrna, and here's something that's undeniable. If you believe in Jesus as the prophet, that is, you're about to suffer. He's kind of going, you're about to suffer. That is just a very common practice of God in the scriptures, not to immediately deliver us from our suffering, but to see us through our suffering. Why would he do that? Well, the passage says that you might be tested. That you think, you know, we think of a test, you know, we might take in school, but I would more compare that to like the, the testing of a metal, right? The refining of a metal. He's refining us through suffering. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was perfected through suffering. God is bringing us to a certain place. And the means by which he gets us there is through our suffering. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to, to go through the suffering? Are you going, no, I'm, I've signed up for Christianity because I was told things would be easy. Well, Jesus is writing a letter saying you're about to suffer. Put it in the bulletin, right? Whatever the difficulty was going to be, we read in this passage, it would last 10 days. You know, it's just kind of, I look at that and I'm thinking, well, it seems like an arbitrary number there, 10 days. But we see this also used elsewhere in Scripture in terms of a time of testing. Remember the story in Daniel 
where in the very first chapter of Daniel, he's there and he won't eat the king's food. And they're like, oh, no, we got to keep you guys healthy. And he's like, oh, here, you guys eat the king's food. I will eat, you know, the ordained food for the Jew for how long? Ten days. And we'll see who looks better. And it was Daniel who looked better. So you see, at least in Scripture, one reference to ten days being a time where you're kind of being tested. But at very least, ten days is a short period of time. It's a brief trial. And Jesus is weighing this brief trial against the eternal crown of glory. And that measurement must ever kind of be in our minds recognizing that the suffering of this age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be ours. We we must ever live our lives with a recognition of the eternal glory. Otherwise, we could be overwhelmed by the difficulties that we are going to suffer in this life. Friends, our very lives, by biblical standards, are a hand breath. That's it. I mean, we are here and gone. I mean, talk about a vapor. Right? You, and we need, you know, one of the great pastors in the past, uh, in history, you know, made the statement, I preach as a dying man to dying men. That's the message. The message is, really, the heart of the message is, death awaits. Have you embraced the life in Christ? That's the message. It's not just kind of like, hey, I can, you know, it's not your best life now, which is, by the way, a best-selling Christian book. I hope it's not. I hope this isn't my best life now. It's eternal life. Now, before we close, I think it might help us to recognize kind of the the machinations of Jesus' warning here. Like, how does this all unfold? What does this look like? Because he says the devil's going to throw you in prison. But that doesn't really happen, right? I mean, it's not like the devil kind of goes, hey, come on, right? Walks you into prison. So what does that look like? How does the devil actually achieve throwing these Christians into prison? Now, I've mentioned this many times. And so the things that I mentioned many times, I will eventually put in my little who's who and what's what in Revelation when I get to it. But there are two adversaries in the book of Revelation. There's the religious adversary of the church, which is Jerusalem, and the political adversary of the church, which is Rome. These are the two enemies that we're going to be kind of seeing God deal with. Well, the means by which this testing slash imprisonment takes place is by Satan winning the religious community, right? They become... The religious community becomes a synagogue of what? Satan. So Satan wins the religious community, and then the religious community influences the political community because the religious community can't put people in jail. It's the civil magistrate who can put people in jail. So understand the order. It goes from Satan to the religious community to the civil magistrate, to the civil authorities. That's the order that takes place. What happened to Polycarp was very similar to what happened to Jesus. How How did the crucifixion of Christ unfold? It begins with Satan. 
who enters Judas to betray him. And then it moves to the religious community, the Pharisees. And then the religious community convinces the civil authority, Pilate. That's the order. But let me just say this. I made a huge mistake, and hopefully some of you caught it, because it doesn't start with Satan. It starts with God. Because ultimately, as with the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh, it's God's own plan for the refinement of his own people. We, we, don't, we don't look at these as God and Satan as two deities warring against each other. The, the devil, Luther said, is God's devil. He's God's junkyard dog. And the crooked stick of Satan is something God will use to draw his own straight line. You know, the, the, God will accomplish through the sin of man his own divine purpose and plan. And this is something that Jesus needs to convey to this church. He's the first and the last. Satan's going to throw you into prison, but you need to understand that it is your kingdom that endures to the end. And I am your king, and I will deliver you. You know, we admire people who are faithful unto death. Jesus says, be faithful unto death. But I would argue that being faithful unto death must always ultimately be in the service of Christ whether I'm a police officer or in the military or a dad or whatever I am, that ultimately I need to recognize that if I'm going to give my life up, ultimately, even though it might be for my own children or my own country or my own what have you, ultimately is to the glory of Christ. We need to be willing to give this life up. But you never give up that second death. That, that is not on the block. That is not something that we negotiate with. To die for a lesser God, I think, is tragic because there is a second death that Jesus refers to here that is much worse than the first death. You know, uh, if you read John Calvin on, you know, the passion of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating the great drops of blood, Calvin says something that at first blush almost sounds so irreverent. He basically says that if what Jesus was, was going through in terms of take this cup from me and I'm sweating these great drops of blood, if what Jesus had in mind was the first death, if what Jesus had in mind was what the Romans were going to do to him, he would have been effeminate. And I'm like, wow, that seems like a dangerous thing to say. But his argument is this, he goes, because there were people who faced the cross of Rome with great courage. Are we going to assume that Jesus was not as courageous, you know, as Spartacus? No, no. What Calvin argues, and I agree with, is that it wasn't the first death that caused this consternation in the heart of Christ. It was the prospect of the second death. It wasn't the wrath of man that concerned Jesus. It was the wrath of God that concerned Jesus. We don't, wanna, we, we don't want to face that second death. That second death is faced for us by Christ. And I pray that's true of everybody in this room. Because the first, first death is nothing compared to the second death. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, at the very end here, I'm saying what's interesting in my research is that Smyrna, this church, this church that had no like uh, critique by Christ other than a commendation, still stands. All indication is Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, though it's a very Muslim community, that church is still there. And so, you know, maybe that's a testimony to their faithfulness and God preserving them. But what we finish up here with is that the great promise to those who overcome, what does that mean? To persevere in the faith, even in the face of great devastations from the devil and humanity. Those who are going, look at, I'm going to run this race until God brings me home. Have the eternal deliverance over the second death. It is to vanquish that second death that Jesus went to the cross. It was to vanquish that second death that Jesus rose again. And I pray that we all know the power of that resurrection. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would ever seek to be a faithful church that we'd be willing to receive corrections and rebukes, that you would ever instruct us individually and corporately. We pray that anybody who would walk in to our church would come to know the light who is Christ, and that, Father, by your Spirit, you would bring them near. We pray that for all churches. and We do pray that your kingdom would continue to advance and that all the kings of the earth would come before you. What a blessing, Father, that would be. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.